Good evening. Welcome to another episode of the Medical Sports Nutrition Podcast. It's with myself, Dr. Andy Matheson. The first thing I want to touch on was an interesting little snippet I read in the BMJ. This was looking at vegan diets in children and we all find this a a difficult area because people all seem to feel very strongly about vegan, non-vegan and the decision on what we eat sometimes gets decided based on other beliefs rather than just purely nutritional and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that we're uh, complex beings with lots of different thoughts feelings and views this uh, this article was just reporting about how a polish study that had been presented at a uh, recent meeting had found that uh, just around 200 polish 5 to 10 year olds who uh, were sort of a mixture of vegetarian vegan and meat eaters were followed for a year uh, and there was a 3% less uh, growth in the um, vegan children and 4 to 6% lower bone mineral content. However, lower levels of LDL cholesterol and lower body fat. They also mentioned uh, problems with sort of vitamin B12 and vitamin D. Now, the real takeaway from this is we've probably got to stop spending so much time looking purely at is something vegan, not vegan, vegetarian or not. And we should always start with the was it predominantly processed food or not processed food and what other vitamin supplements did they have? Because the what the BMJ um, sort of filled in the details for and and this I think this is only still a presentation the full full paper is not out yet um, but what they said is we should use this as a uh, to remind ourselves that in a lot of vegan food unless people are willing to put the time in making their food from scratch exactly the same as for other forms of food there can be a lot of processed food so is your vegan making their own food and doing it all from scratch or are they eating processed and ultra processed food the the other bits on obviously children whatever diet they're on need to meet their b12 vitamin d and i presume if they looked at kind of leucine levels and protein and stuff that would have come up as well i mean it's kind of obvious and whenever i'm chatting with uh vegan athletes it the, the questions on okay do you take supplements for b12 what's your understanding of the different types of heme and, and sort of how you get iron into your bodies uh, what's your thoughts on on the degree of processed food in your diet and is this something we could work on i imagine much the same as anyone I suppose I am probably better at doing it for my vegan athletes, so I think they would probably, oddly enough, get a better service from me. Should probably be doing it more for all my athletes. Um, And moving on to the next article. So this was in the BMJ Military Health, and I'll just bring it up. It was called... 
Experience from the selection and nutritional preparation for the expedition Ice Maiden, the first successful all-female unassisted Antarctic Traverse. And uh, it was an interesting talk through how during some of the uh, parts of the pre-expedition they had tried different diets to see which ones went best with the athletes, helped them maintain their weight, was preferred by the athletes. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I'm not sure uh, there's anything in this that's going to be particularly uh, going to change practice for anyone, but interesting to hear how they had gone gone through it. Um, I mean, the, the, the initial part for me is something that I've seen in a few different studies. Um, in, you, I often come across it when um, I'm listening to more medical presentations on diet type. They referred to certain diets as high fat, but the ones they were referring to as high fat were, were higher fat. They certainly wouldn't fall into the sort of high fat category that we would, um, as performance nutritionists, uh, think of high fat. So anything above 20% um, of uh, kind of calorie intake was, was getting labelled high fat. Uh, and this is quite misleading and and does tend to lead to a lot of confusion um, in the medical world. And when people finally all agree on what is going to be the way we label diets and, and how we will all do it together, it's going to make it so much easier reading these papers. Um, so they talked about uh, the impact of a high-fat diet. At no point did they really put anyone through a high-fat diet. Um, certainly not a, sort of a keto diet. It was just a slightly higher proportion of high-fat. And this is on a background of a very traditional Additional high carbohydrate um, dietitian team that it, within the military. So, all their starting point was the military rations, which are high carbohydrate um, and, and often, and this is UK rations, very different. So, for example, the French rations. And the switch to slightly higher fat was quite an interesting change for um, a military group and good to see. Uh, a few of the comments in the article, um, such as we were worried that the female athletes would worry about their figures if we gave them a high fat diet, seemed uh, probably a bit misogynistic. Um, difficult to say. I think they've probably just written the paper poorly and that's not what they meant to say. Um, and in an odd comment at the end, they were saying, oh, we're really surprised that actually the athletes on this higher protein, or not higher protein, to be honest, it was pretty low protein, but higher than military rations normally have protein and higher than normal fat levels in military rations. We're surprised that they maintained lean mass and lost some fat. And you think, well, but this is exactly what you would expect in the sorts of training that these athletes were doing and the work they did on the expedition. I mean, if you walked up to anyone and said, I'm going to put some trained athletes through a prolonged period of doing long, low-intensity work, do you think they might lose some of their fat mass? The answer would be, well, 
almost certainly, regardless of what diet you put them on, what diet are you putting them on? Well, we're going to try and manage to keep their percentage of protein up at about 1.7. We'd say, well, that's not probably not high enough, but yeah, yeah, I imagine they will do. So, uh, interesting because of the, uh, that the, the, it was a military team and, and that they moved quite a way away from their traditional uh, approach to uh, rations um, and they were good enough to talk through the sort of different hurdles and th- thought process but uh, nothing nothing that's going to change too much what uh, most of us are, are doing or recommending for our, our clients. So the the first paper I sort of looked at was just a kind of um, uh, hydroxyvitamin D assays, a historical perspective from Dequas, and that was the one with this lovely little comment on there. And they they go back to the first study that they um, really pushed that actually this is a real challenge. And it was in 1984, and it showed there were quite large discrepancies between the the measured 2,5-hydroxyvitamin D levels in some samples. And since then, uh, they introduced Dequas. They introduced uh, the, sort of this uh, quality assessment scheme in 1989. And since then, things have been improving. And there was another nice paper from them called Hydroxyvitamin D assays, a historical perspective from Dequas, talking about how over time they've kind of pushed uh, further and further and, and getting more and more accurate. Um, and the uh, it's these sort of LCMS methods that are, have been brought into almost all laboratories that uh, people use now. But e- even they were saying in, in in their kind of summary that actually there's still still difficulties there. Now the first article that kind of cost my, crossed uh, my computer page and made me think about this was this this is the one in the frontiers of nutrition so it's challenges ahead for a rational analysis of vitamin d in athletes and it's just a reminder this article that we can't really still even now take the vitamin d levels that we have in front of us um as uh, a sort of a rigid answer uh, we've, there's, there's there's a little bit of um, toing and froing in there, and whether or not it's variation between different laboratory assays, uncertainty about how how um, how comparable they all are, what ranges to use, and are our kind of cutoffs uh, for athletes the right ones, or are they all based on historical cutoffs? Looking at um, disease rather than performance so a really nice reminder of how hard this subject is and and as I said the uh, other other article that kind of caught my eye and made me think oh this is this is really again just an area where however hard I try I, I always seem to be slipping behind it was called reference intervals for serum 2425 dihydroxyvitamin d and the ratio with 25 hydroxy establishing a new developed lcms-ms method so they were this was a sort of study looking at the feasibility of saying okay, uh, actually, to complicate things even further, what we know is that some people, 
when we measure their uh, vitamin D, actually we just get um, a uh, incorrect answer, if you like. And this article was just looking at alternative ways of measuring vitamin D in people who have uh, had either through sort of renal disease or other causes have had the uh, sort of enzyme that activates uh, the sort of next stage of the vitamin D uh, turned off. Um, so the next paper that we are looking at is called the uh, Fueling the Female Athlete Carbohydrate and Protein Recommendations and it's in the European Journal of Sports Science and it's uh, an interesting read, doesn't make many particular conclusions beyond that there is a complete lack of data and usable data in, in de de delineating the different requirements between male and, and female athletes. The bit I found most interesting and useful for myself is was reading around their views on this idea that there may be a reduced capacity to store glycogen in the vastus lateralis muscle um, in certain stages of the menstrual cycle in females compared to males. And is this real? Is this an artifact of actually just not correctly carbohydrate loading uh, during that trial? And or is this something where we need to be saying our carbohydrate loading needs to be menstrual cycle phase dependent and the conclusion they came to in these guidelines is that there may be a trivial impairment of exercise performance in early follicular phase it's always going to be athlete dependent and variable and it may be that female athletes should pay particular attention to their uh, sort of carbohydrate use and availability during that follicular phase. Um, and I, I suppose if you had asked me three or four years ago how realistic that was, I'd say, well, how, how are the athletes going to know what phase they're in? But actually what I tend to find now is that a, a lot of athletes, but certainly a lot of women in general, um, especially if they're looking ahead to kind of recovery of menses or planning kind of fer fertility and planning getting pregnant, they will be using the apps to, to monitor their cycle. And the apps are really good. Um, I, I can't think of any patient that's come in and said that they haven't found it pretty accurate. So actually, it should in athletes that aren't controlling uh, their sort of hormonal levels and cycles with uh, contraception or, or hormone, hormonal contraception. Do we need to be thinking what sort of training do we want to do in the different cycles? Should the coach and the athlete be looking at these apps and looking at the sort of cycle timeline, cycle length, predicted uh, dates for various points in the cycle and planning the training schedule better? And what this paper was saying is should we also be changing how we might load carbohydrates during certain periods of the cycle to get the best performance? Uh, all stuff, the answer is probably yes. Um, how much you're going to do that is obviously going to depend on how much the athlete and the coach feel it's uh, going to make a difference for them. 
And let's move on to the last bit of the podcast. So this was a, a little rabbit hole I got sent down whilst listening to the Joe Rogan podcast. And they were talking about uh, nutritional supplements, as they often will. And it's always useful for someone such as myself who pays a lot of attention to the medical literature, but probably doesn't pay enough attention or read around alternative and other options for sort of nutritional support. And so I find actually this, this podcast um, quite useful for just getting an idea of the other options out there. Uh, and they were talking about something called BPC-157 that I, I'd never heard of. Um, I had heard of um, sort of gut polypeptides and was aware of gut hormones and certainly some of the more powerful hormones in our body i mean serotonin somatostatin ghrelin um or i'm aware of the presence of these in the gut uh and it, it kind of for me falls into that area where there's far more active substances there than we're aware of it's a, a little bit like that when we and i'm sure i'll come to another point in the podcast when we think, when we talk, look at those papers showing just how hormonally active our fatty tissue is, we always come away and think, ah, this is this is a really active endocrine organ, uh, and the same can be said of of the gut in many ways. So, uh, the question on, on the podcast is: this a sensible and safe thing to take? Uh, and obviously, the part the the answered that's probably not um for a start ucad um it's uh, and wada and obviously the us um equivalent the usada have put it on the new band list and the reasons for that we'll, we'll cover briefly but it's not something you can get a 2UE for it's not something that's approved so certainly athletes that are on it and uh, are competing make sure you, you stop at Christmas and it, it, it's an interesting um, history to it it's been around for a while but almost the entire body of research seems to have been based in Croatia, just at one or two laboratories. And it never really seems to have moved on from rat studies. Uh, the, there seems to have been, uh, and certainly the, um, the WADA comment on that the human trials all seem to have come to early stops. So there's all those alarm bells going that if this is such a great option why hasn't big pharma come in widened it out to phase one phase two phase three trials and why hasn't it been picked up by anyone other than the this croatian group it might just be that uh the they've just been unlucky and it, it's not been been taken up but and that seems to be if you just google um uh, the the information you get is this is some super secret and actually if everyone knew about it they wouldn't go for it and i, I can see why they're kind of jumping on that because there's there's plenty of animal studies on it from this croatian group uh and a, a couple of others i think um I could find, but 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 not many. But one in um, Nature Scientific Reports, just on the sort of cellular oxygen and how it probably works around the nitric oxide synthase pathway. Um, and, and and again, so 
lots of these rat models showing how uh, it's helpful and beneficial for a rat model of ulcerative colitis. It's beneficial for a uh, rat model of wound healing. Uh, it's beneficial for um, uh, a uh, sort of uh, where was the other one? It was, um, I think, gastric ulcer rat model again. And I think there was also some uh, spinal injury rat model that it had shown promise in. So clearly it's an active drug in rats. Clearly it has an effect that people have the basic understanding of. Does this mean we should be putting it in our body? And what the kind of against argument would be is these are powerful things that have an effect and what what could the negative effects be and the best i could find was that there's a worry about promoting cancer growth and uh, cancer blood vessel development which i think will probably be enough to get most of us to, to hold tight until they've managed to get permission to run a, a human trial for it so um what to do with it, to take the uh, advice of Google or to say, well, there must be a reason why the pharmaceutical industry, which doesn't tend to be afraid of taking taking a risk on, on a human trial, hasn't touched it with a barge pole. Uh, I think it's probably going to be a, a hold tight for the moment. But I, I wait to be proved wrong when presumably next week a huge paper will come out showing that it's it's fantastic. Right, uh, thank you very much for uh, listening in. Please do give any feedback to me through the Facebook page uh, or any other method that you want to. Hope you have a super weekend and uh, manage to get some great exercise.